Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now, and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. I have known J.J. Martin for my entire professional career, and yet until this podcast interview, I hadn't realized just how much our lives were parallel. We are both California girls. We both left the United States to follow our hearts to Europe, and we both became top fashion journalists in international fashion capitals. Now, all of this is a fun side note to this interview, but the real reason I wanted to speak with JJ is to finally learn the how and the why behind her choice to launch her company, La Double J, in 2015. If ever there was an inspirational story about how to be fearless when it comes to pivoting and creating a second act for your career, it's JJ's story. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. In this podcast, you will hear all about how JJ was able to start following her passion for fashion through the fields of advertising and marketing, how she ended up living in Milan, not speaking a word of Italian, and how a chance meeting with the renowned fashion journalist Godfredini put her on the path to becoming one of the top fashion writers in Milan, eventually spending 15 years on staff at publications like the Wall Street Journal, Harper's Bazaar, and Wallpaper. Today, however, JJ's love of fashion, and more specifically bold prints and great Italian artisans, has manifested itself into one one of the industry's most beloved small businesses. The Double J is an e-commerce website that extols all things vibrant and vivid. Her curated selection of vintage pattern prints on easy-to-wear dresses, pants, and tops has made her site the go-to place for anyone who loves to be the center of attention when they walk in a room. Better yet, JJ has smartly evolved the company to become an avenue for her to highlight the work of Italian artists and brands that she feels need to be celebrated, such as the porcelain company NCAP, the Venetian glassmaker Salviati, the luxury handbag company Balextra, and Aqua di Parma by creating collaborations that blend their work with her own unique colorful universe. More recently, JJ has expanded La Double J even further into the lifestyle brand space with a new focus on the world of wellness and helping women around the planet find their inner goddess. In a section on her site dedicated to living like an Italian, JJ discusses topics like the power of color on the psyche, chakras, and the movement practice Kijong. Just on a technical side note, I did want to let all you listeners know that JJ and I did our interview over Zoom video. So don't be surprised by a couple of very minor audio issues. And if you happen to be more of a visual learner, feel free to head over to my signature YouTube channel to watch the video version of this podcast in action. Now, be ready to get inspired by JJ's story. How she was able to manifest the career she wants through passion, determination, and hard work should motivate all of us, now more than ever, to start following our dreams. JJ, I'm so excited we finally got to do this together. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's great to see you, even though we're both locked down in our apartment. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I actually want to take you all the way back to the beginning because I was, as I was researching for this interview, I realized that we're both California girls. You're from the West Coast too? Yes. Wait, I didn't even realize you came from California, Jessica. Where are you from? San Francisco. No way. We never discussed that. That's so funny. I grew up in Los Angeles and then I went up to Berkeley for college and then stayed in San Francisco for a couple of years working after I graduated. Oh my God. I lived in, uh, in Arinda. So just through the Caldecott tunnel. So no way. That's so funny. 
Did you study uh, fashion journalism or journalism uh, when you were at Berkeley? Not at all. I was a rhetoric major. I was convinced I was going to be a lawyer. And after my first legal theory class, I realized that was a huge mistake and that was definitely not happening. However, I really think rhetoric, which is basically the art of communicating, you know, argumentative reading and writing and speaking uh, came in so handy when I eventually much later began my writing career. So, well then talk to me a little bit about that because it's very, you have almost very similar paths in that I studied political science and had no intention of going to fashion journalism. That was a completely different path. So how did you, what came first? Was it the, the fashion that interests you? Was it the writing that interests you? What got you onto this amazing career path that, you, that you're now on? It was absolutely fashion. I didn't even think that I had the skills to be a writer. I didn't think I had the skills to be a creator. I didn't think I was a creative person. Mm. I was just absolutely attracted to fashion, to New York, to the media world. And I had grown up in a very non-fashion family. I didn't have any examples of people around me that had done that or that looked the part or that had the wardrobes. And it was always just this very remote dream. Mm -hmm. So when I graduated from Berkeley and moved to the city, I, I knew I wanted to be in something creative, but you know, as you know, San Francisco is not really the fashion capital of the United States either. So what I did was I got into the industry that was the most creative, which was advertising. Mm -hmm. And San Francisco had a cluster of some of the most creative ad agencies. It was Portland, Oregon, and San Francisco, California, that had these boutique agencies that were doing all the best creative work for the ad agencies across the world. And so I started with Hal Reine. And then a couple years later, I transferred to another boutique agency called Kirschenbaum Bond and Partners in New York. Yeah, this was in like 1997, 1998, something like that. And I'll never forget because, you know, there, were, there must have been like 45 of us. Everyone was under the age of 30. All the guys had like edgy haircuts. They were all wearing Prada sport shoes before Prada was even known. I mean, it was like, it was so... It was so cool. There were like dr everyone drinking at four o'clock on Fridays. And it was just this really wonderful creative environment. And what happened was I got super lucky because soon after arriving there, they landed the Tommy Hilfiger account. And I was the account executive on this business. And oh my God. about a year later, I read about a job at Calvin Klein that had opened up in marketing and I applied and I got the job. Like without knowing anyone, without no friends, nothing. I just literally sent my resume and a cover letter and I got the job. That That's unheard of. I don't, for those of you listening, that is unheard of. It's kind of like me. I sent one CV to the Herald Tribune and got hired and became Susie Menkes' assistant without realizing who she was. So, you know, it's very similar. That's crazy. Because usually you have to know somebody, especially the marketing, that kind of field to get in. Totally. So was that job based in Milan? I mean, what brought you to Italy? No. So Calvin Klein was based in New York and I was in that job for about two years. And then I met an Italian man at a party, had a long distance relationship and decided to leave my New York lifestyle, my shoebox apartment. I left everything behind and I moved to Milan and I didn't have a job. So I started studying very intensely. I took six hours of Italian courses per day with three different private instructors. I literally did two. I was like 
speed studying. <laughs> that is insane. I, for anybody who's who's had to power a new language, it's exhausting. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but those, those those dinners that you would have where everyone was speaking the language back and forth, and you're just concentrating so hard to try and pick up at least one thread of one conversation. Six hours a day is exhausting. I don't know how you did oh that. Oh my God, it so was. But you know, I'm not a natural, I'm not naturally attuned to languages. And mm -hmm. I had lived in Paris during college. And I mean, I barely picked up the language. And I knew that if I didn't really commit to it and fully immerse myself, I never would have learned it. So after three months of this, I could basically communicate. And, um, you know, what happened was I was looking for a marketing job in fashion and I sent my resume and cover letters to every fashion company in town. And I quickly discovered not a single one of them had a marketing department. They'd never heard of it. Their marketing did not exist in Italian fashion in 2001. And I could, they didn't know where to place me. I didn't have specific PR experience. I didn't have specific sales experience. And so I couldn't get a job basically. And this led me to, you know, some serious frustration. And until one day I was at a fashion week presentation and I'm standing at the bar and I meet Godfrey Dini. Oh and, and we just strike up a conversation. He's asking me what I do. I'm like, I don't do anything. I'm looking for a job. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, I just threw it out there. I was like, well, I, you know, I'd like to work for you. I'd like to be a writer. And um, it turned out that Godfrey was the editor at the time of the world's first online fashion news service, which was called Fashion Wire Daily. Daily. Yeah, he gave me my first job too. No way. Yeah. yeah, even before Susie. Susie actually saw my writing in, because she said it was okay that I write. And she saw my writing and went, oh my God, okay, you're coming back in house and we're going to have you write for us. Wait, that's so funny because I had a very similar experience. It's so weird. I never heard that story either from you. Yeah. Um, what happened was I got hired by Godfrey, but at the time in Italy, I mean, nobody even had a website. They were not interested in online content. They didn't think it was worth anything. I couldn't get show tickets. If I did get a show ticket, I was standing in the last, you know, behind everybody. And basically I was just, you know, I was, I was the lowest of the low of the low. And no one was reading what I wrote except one person, Susie Menkes. And she would come up to me at the shows and be like, I really like what you wrote about Alberta Ferretti. Or like, hey, nice quote from Victoria Beckham in the front row of Dolce & Gabbana. You know, and she would just like, she was obviously reading Fashion Wire Daily because she didn't want to be scooped. She wanted to, you know, she was such a thorough journalist. Yes. And a year after starting with Godfrey, she gave me my first commissions from the International Herald Tribune. And so once I started working for her during the fashion weeks and doing that coverage, that just changed everything and gave me such a platform and suddenly all of those all those doors of, opened yeah and all of those like unfriendly pr people became much more friendly <laughs> and much more accommodating and from there the team at harper's bazaar christina o'neill and amanda ross at the time found me and asked me to be their european editor so that's what started my journalism career and then i was five years with harper's bazaar um, I do have to ask because, you know, the, the intrepid journalist and to see if we have another completely, you know, uh, symbiotic or similar story. The man that you followed to Italy, did you end up staying with that guy or did you move on to bigger and better? So he became my husband. I stayed with, uh, we were together for 19 years, but we recently divorced. Hmm. However, he is my business partner. 
So we, I mean, that is a, a bond. In a different way. Yeah, that's a sacred relationship. And I, uh, he will always be my family. I owe so much to this person. He really supported me and he believed in me. You know, I think this guy had more confidence in my abilities than I did and almost like more confidence than he had in himself. It was so weird. He was just like 100% convinced that I should be the best writer. I should have like a super successful fashion company. I mean, it was all in his head. And uh, so it's so great to have a cheerleader like that in your life. I mean, it, it literally, it's our lives are parallel. I also left us to marry my future husband. So, you know, and then our paths crossed. That's how we actually first met was at the Herald Tribune because I would go over your copy when I was working with Susie when you were filing for the special reports. And then That's so right. and so you Harper's Bazaar with with Christine O'Neill and you were five years there and then Then I went six months in-house at Gucci, which was oh. the worst experience of my life working for Frida Janini and Patrizio Di Marco. I thought I was going to commit suicide it was like it was the worst most toxic place to work and they ended up firing me after six months and it was so humiliating and i had worked my ass off and they were so ungrateful it was really it was honestly a movie i've never seen anything like it and like a book that needs to be written totally totally especially because it's such a karmic rebate to see every all of Alessandro's success and to know he was always there and just to see what happens when the magic starts and the fear lifts off a company. Because when I was in Gucci, I felt it was like this culture of fear. I felt the fear. It was like a cloak everyone was wearing. That's not how you breed creativity. And so it was a very good thing they fired me because I'm too, way too stubborn and way too tenacious to have ever quit. <laughs> So after that, I got hired by Wallpaper Magazine to be their Italian editor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the time, Wallpaper was not really a magazine that I read. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's like super minimal. It was really hardcore design. It was almost like a little bit too intense for me. And it ended up being the best job I ever had in journalism because they were so ahead of their time in terms of blending the worlds of art, architecture, design, food, fashion, and art all in one book. And no one was really doing that in a smart, intellectual way. And my job was like, they loved it when I would go and find that crazy artisan doing ceramics that like no one else could do. Whereas like at Harper's Bazaar, all I was basically doing was like uh, profiles on Giorgio Armani and Donatella Versace and Dolce Gabbana. Mm -hmm. So that was a great job. And while then another job that I had uh, where I was on staff was with the WSJ magazine when Christina went there, she hired me. So I wrote for, I was on staff with, with her and with the, and, and doing freelance for off duty. Mm -hmm. And then, you know what it's like? I mean, I, I was just doing tons of freelance writing as well. I mean, I think I've written for every fashion title in the United States and the UK, a lot of Japanese titles too. And then it just really got to the point where I, I felt like I was sort of done with journalism. It just felt like I had I had written every designer profile I could ever imagine writing. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. I know. It's like how many different times, as much as I, you know, how many different times can I interview, you know, uh, Dries, Dries Van Noten? Because I, you know, I've done it so many times. Like, what new angle can you come up with? 
I mean, let, let's take a pause here because I, I, I want to step into your, your career for the, today that's so exciting. But I do want to ask you, because I do have people approach me about being a fashion journalist and going into that field. What would you recommend as, as somebody who's gone through the, the fires as I have? I mean, what would you say to people who are interested in doing that today? Well, the game has changed so completely. My advice today would have been something totally different than 10 years ago. Yeah. So today, the very first thing you should do is create the most beautiful, edited, and perfectly written Instagram account. And you should be, that should be your mini magazine that you curate with as much attention to detail as if you were working for Anna Wintour. And, and, and that way that's a showcase and you should have a point of view and you should decide like what it's about. Is it going to be about like 18th century paintings? Is it going to be like a guide to Milan? Is it going to be, you know, just pick your theme, stick to it and do it and show that you know how to storytell, you know how to edit photos, you know how to create quick snappy copy mm -hmm. because that's the name of the game today. Agreed. Content and shortened bite size, you know, edible content to a certain extent. But I'm assuming that your time with wallpaper, you know, scooping, getting, digging in and finding those amazing outside the box creatives, you know, artisanal uh, pottery makers or, or textiles. Is that what decided you to move into your new business? Or I think it has more to do with your own personal collection of vintage clothing, but you tell me. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I launched Double J five years ago is very different than what it is today. So when I launched, this was a pet project. I still had my journalism career. It was a total side gig. And I just decided to focus on two things that I loved. One was vintage clothing and jewelry that I wanted to sell. And the other was telling stories about these remarkable Italian creative women that I had been meeting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you embark on any new project, you have to like think, number one, what's fresh and new? And number two, like, what am I good at? Yeah. <laughs> so I was really good at storytelling and packaging and writing because my jobs weren't just writing jobs. Like I did so many, I acted as a sittings editor on hundreds of photo shoots. So I would go into, you know, because also Bazaar didn't have the budgets that American Vogue does. So it's not like they would fly a team over. Step back and explain what a sittings editor is for those who are listening and might not know what that is. Yeah, so the sittings editor is the person who's responsible for the photo shoot itself and making sure that the photographer and the stylist actually get the images that are going to work from a... Uh, larger editorial standpoint. So they're kind of like the, the voice and the eye of the magazine. And it, so I would go on to shoots and I would be both the journalist, like there to like report and understand what the story, but then I would also be the sittings editor, which meant essentially that the photographer and the stylist were always like asking me, like, does this work? Like, did we get the right shot? Like, and because I would be the one that was there knowing the kinds of shots that Glenda wanted knowing the things that Christina wanted, et cetera, I really became an expert at how to kind of do these like really extravagant shoots at budget shoestring prices. Yeah, because she's always very good at, at getting a lot of bang for her buck with all of her shoots, for sure. Totally, totally. So that's what I did. And I applied that to Double J. So I hired a great photographer, uh, Alberto Zanetti, and an amazing fashion director, Viviana Volpicella. And the three of us created, 
an incredible online magazine. I, now that I look back on it, I mean, I can't believe how great it was and how many women's homes we went into in Milan. It was like, it must have been like 45 total. And we did full scale photo shoots of like five portraits of the woman. Then there was probably like 15 photos of her home, the way she set her table, the way that she organized her closet. And then I was doing a profile on her and then I was doing like breakdown columns on like all of her rules for living. And then we got the, each woman to wear double J vintage and have it mixed with their own wardrobe. So that meant that our content showed vintage mixed with new clothes and vintage worn on real women. And that was like unprecedented. No one had done that before in the e-commerce space or even in the editorial space. In context with the clothing, the vintage and showing that it worked today. Yeah, and we had such a, an incredible response. This website, when it launched, I mean, I've never seen anything shoot out of the gate so quickly. I was, the, the write-ups in, New York Magazine was like, this is the best vintage website on the planet. Like, I mean, Vogue wrote about, I mean, every Financial Times, every single magazine and newspaper wrote about us. And the, the response was so overwhelmingly positive. And it was like, it was such a testament to all of our hard work. And the vintage was selling. We were doing, you know, we were doing quite a good job. The problem that I quickly realized is that the just upkeeping the vintage market is so challenging because this is not resale. Mm -hmm. This is real vintage, 20 years or more older, and everything needed to be authenticated. Everything needed to be like in perfect condition. It took, it, it had taken me like 20 years to amass that collection. Mm -hmm. So I realized pretty quickly, and it was my husband at the time who said, well, you know, why don't you make new clothes with vintage patterns. And so we started with just one dress and that's how that whole world erupted. We, I, I went to some um, friends in Lake Como, the Mentero family, and they offered to let me go into their archives and use vintage prints. Mm -hmm. And Ruth Chapman bought the dresses and launched this. Ruth's the best. Yeah. fashion. She is the best. She always has a great eye. I want to talk then how you would, I mean, I think that's so brilliant to even think about going into these, you know, dusty older brands or, or in finding these vintage prints and turning them into modern pieces. And then also your silhouettes are, are very clean so that the patterns look amazing. But I'm curious, I just want to go a step back to when you launched the site, because I know some people who are thinking about launching their own brand are going to know, want to know, granted you have the inside contacts, you could call up, you know, your friends, but what was the build-up strategy for the launch? Because it had a huge reception, like you said, but how did you prep that reception on the back end? Were you reaching out to people? Did you do, you know, whispering people's ears? Because I, I, I think people would want to know how you were able to launch so big and so bold in that way. There's, there's definitely work behind that, not just the quality of the, the website itself. Yeah, so this was where my husband's company came in so handy because he had an e-commerce company that uh, works for several big brands called The Level Group in Milan. And his marketing team was the one who told me that I should have like a countdown campaign and that I should create this whole like online teasing thing. And so one of the things that I did prior to launching was create a lot of these really fun GIFs and video, like mini videos. And I didn't have a database. I had probably like 10,000 people in my MacBook address book, my yep. Mac address book. And I literally 
sent it to every single one of those people, whether they asked for it or not. And I was like, Double J is coming. This is what it was. And so by the time it actually did launch, and you know, it helped because I had, I had had a writing career. So a lot of the people in my address books were editors and writers. And so they all saw what I was doing. I didn't have any, I didn't have any PR help for the first two years of this operation, like zero. I mean, I have to say, I remember it from that time and it was so polished and so well thought out. And even like when you're using illustrations to, to be, for the outfits to be dressed in illustrated women wearing the dresses and, you know, in, in their full form. And I just thought that that was so clever. I'd never seen anything like that before. So that was done by my friend, Lisa Lot Watkins, who is a Swedish illustrator based in Rome. And, you know, Double J really was, I, I think what gave it its strength was that it wasn't a, like a market opportunity. It wasn't like a business plan project it was really like i love these things and now i'm gonna like ask my friends to participate and whoever is into this is gonna be a great person to bring along so like lisa lot loved it and i was like paying her in vintage clothes and you know alberto was like working for free for the first two years and I just paid his assistance and he was so happy because he's like, I love these photos so much. It's making my portfolio awesome. Mm -hmm. Luca Cipolletti, who built our first wonder wall inside our showroom is this incredible Italian architect. You know, he thought of this amazing installation for us that was basically like a cabinet of curiosities that had all of our prints on the backdrop of it. And he thought of it in such a clever way that didn't cost a lot. He himself took like a really small fee and everyone was just so generous. And at the same time, I gave all those people a lot of visibility. I talked about them. I showed them. I mean, people thought that like they were all like partners in the business, you know, the way you, you shared the joy and the, I mean, you, every time you would name check everybody, you know, who participated in whatever project you were doing related to, to the website. I thought yeah, ab really absolutely. And we did the same when I started working with the Italian because, you know, as I went into then, okay, let's make a business. Let's actually, now we actually have to make money. You know, I can't do all of this, but I can't work every weekend and every night <laughs> for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, let's make some money. I really thought that it made sense to stay with the core of the company, which was Italy. Mm -hmm. And Italy had given me so much. It really took me a long time to appreciate Italy. I got to be perfectly honest. My first five years, I was cranky as hell. Nothing worked. Everything was broken. They were so slow. The air conditioning on the train in August was like always broken, always also June and July. I couldn't get my apartment cool in the month of June to save my life. You know, I was just freaking out all the time with the most ridiculous complaints. Now that I look back on it, I realize how sort of superficial I was and how I had just come and brought my American sort of attitude of, well, I deserve, it's my right to have, you know, air conditioning that works, like, you know, whatever. Um, I want to have all of the stores open on Sunday at any hour of the day. Yeah. Or just, you know, there was no yoga. I, I literally could not find anything to soothe me. There were, you know, I didn't like, of course I like Italian food, but it's like, I just wanted to eat a salad. I wanted to have vegetables and, you know, I'm kind of a vegetarian. I had a really hard time with the food. I couldn't find any place to jog. I was like, I'm, I was an athlete. I, I was so frustrated. 
no yoga, no Pilates, nothing in 2001. So this was like a huge spin cycle. And when I, now when I look back on it, I realize that difficulty is like all of the difficulties that we face, whether you're now trapped in your house dealing with your family that you can't stand or your loneliness that you can't stand or whatever it is. It's like we come up against these walls in our lives where, you know, our, our familiarity breaks down, our control breaks down, and it's very difficult to operate. And I really learned a lesson in humility in Italy. I really learned a lesson of slowing down, of enjoying what is in front of me, of not having to be in a rat race, not having to be on a treadmill. It's actually a good thing that everything is closed on a Sunday. That way I can relax. You know, there's, you know, there's, I learned a lot in Italy and I really felt like it was my duty and my honor to give back and to shine the light on a lot of Italians that normally don't even get that much recognition. I mean, Mentero has been working for the top fashion brands in the world for the last 115 years. I mean, when I go in and, and do like a factory check with them, I see Gucci being printed. I see Vuitton being printed. I see Dior being printed. And then there's Double J. That's a nice one. That's a nice group to be with. I mean, but it is. It's it, like the website is like a love letter to all things Italian. I mean, it really is. The, the artisans of Italy. And it's not just the fabrics anymore because you also move, have moved, you expanded your brand out into, and I'm thrilled by this, the, the bedding, the homeware, the, the, the leisure wear. I mean, you've really blossomed and, and made this kind of a, a full lifestyle website was was there a was there a game plan to come into that or was it more like oh I, I love this Italian company I want to work with them and then you know but you tell me what it was, was more like um it wasn't the game plan it was again I always like talk about this like heart thing and this intuitive thing with double j it was like is this something that excites me or not the idea of us doing printed tablecloths and printed porcelain plates really excited me and my ex-husband at the time or my husband at the time was like you're not going to make any money off of this we're not doing that and i'm like yeah we are we're doing it and it was a huge hit and granted it's not our biggest money maker but we don't lose money doing it and it makes the entire world of low double j so much more tactile and something that you can bring into your house we've got blankets we've got vases we've got plates uh, we have Murano glasses that we do with Salviati, which is a 19th century company in Murano. We've done a collaboration with Cartel. Uh, we work with ANCAP in Verona for the porcelains. We just did a collaboration with Aqua di Parma and one with Velextra. And so the idea is like, I mean, some of those brands, a lot of people really know. Others, like Mentero, you know, Gucci is not putting their name in the, in the label. Gucci is not talking about Mentero. Mm -hmm. um, no one is. Mm -hmm. And so we started doing that and we, you know, it's, uh, it's usually like a co-collaboration. I'm very vocal about our partners. I want to support them. And I think it's really important that customers start to really do their homework on where things are made and how, because there are brands that are priced very similarly to Double J and that are all sourced in Asia. And that's cheating the customer. I'm just going to say it really, really blatantly because their margins are like, I mean, the difference between what their product costs and what our product costs is probably like 
but worked four or five times mm -hmm. less. And it's unbelievable how, how much brands take advantage of that. And I also, one thing that is like really shocked me just doing my own little research because I was approached by one of those big mass fashion companies to do a collaboration. And at first I was really honored. I was really excited for sure. We should do it. What an opportunity. And then speaking to Livia Firth and getting more information and watching her documentary on just what happens in the factories for Zara and H&M around the world. I don't think I can be a brand that stands for women mm -hmm. and support a company that's who's factories subjugate women. Yeah. And I don't think that 99% of the customers out there are even aware of it. Otherwise, why would they keep shopping in these places? I guarantee you they wouldn't. I, I think that I think that we are really at a time where it's going to be a paradigm shift in relationship to that. I think people were going to see this idea of traceability, you know, authenticity, sustainability. And I think that's all going to come from the customer finally demanding, especially because you can see how with during this confinement period, how little you actually need. So it's more about, you know, it's really about deciding what do you want to bring into your life at this point? Like, what do you want to support? Yeah. So, and don't you want to, don't you want to like keep historic businesses that treat their companies well in business and like, let's stop the factories that are literally like, there's reports of sexual abuse in some of these factories. They're paid completely unfair wages. They are being totally oppressed in their working conditions. You don't want to be a part of that. That is not what you want to put a garment like that is not carrying good energy. It's just not. And then you want to, and the, and I think that you want to buy less and buy quality that's going to last longer because what you're what you're offering, and I have to say that you're, I'm impressed by your price points because in the in the world of fashion, they are reasonable. I mean, you know, reasonable to a certain extent that they're quality and reasonable because they're like you said, the fast fashion stuff you can get things out there, but it it'll you know disintegrate in your hands after one washing or two. So and, and we, I am making a luxury product in Italy that does not have a traditional luxury price. We are 30 to 40 percent less than luxury and we are making our items our porcelain is made in the same factory as Richard Ginori, and our prices are half as Ginori. Well, that's so, I mean, it's like, it's incredible. It is unbelievable. And people, I don't know, I just, I don't want to harm anyone. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, wake up, you guys. Like, there's a brand right now that is just, it's an Australian brand. I'm not going to say the name. It's going like gangbusters, you know, good for them. But when I find out, that their dresses sometimes cost more than mine and they're manufacturing in Asia. I'm like, what? Yeah. How is that? How can you be treating the customer this badly? Yeah, like it's disrespectful. Absolutely. Well, this actually leads me to the, I think it was the last time we saw each other in person in Milan, you handed me, or you, you mailed me a, a book, the goddess book. And I think this was a new chapter, a new positioning, of kind of moving into this well-being space a little bit, but maybe talk about that evolution of, of, your, of your company. Sure. So I have had a pretty strong spiritual practice over the last decade. And it was always something that I did on my own and on the weekends and on my retreats and my vacations. But as I started talk talking to more women, it just always crept up in conversation, whether it was like energy healers I was seeing or meditation practices or navigating 
emotional breakdowns, like all the things that we come up against. So I just kind of started feeling like, God, this is so weird that like, I, I feel like I'm living two lives. Like, can't we find a way to sort of bridge these two worlds? And I was like, I don't know if like the fashion customer even cares <laughs> um, about the chakras, but like, hey, <laughs> why not? Let, let's try it. So the first thing that I tried was there was a book that was really, you know, instrumental for my own growth. And it was called Goddesses and Every Woman, specifically the story of the goddess Persephone. Basically, this book talks about female archetypes and how the Greek goddesses and their stories can teach us about archetypes and basically just get you to learn more about yourself and why you might be doing the things you're doing, both the good and the bad and the weak and the strong and where you might need to grow or shine more light in your life. And the story of Persephone is like, is super major. You can go onto my Instagram and on Double J's Instagram because we've had some posts recently about Persephone. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I had my team design me the goddesses. There are seven primary Greek goddesses. And I had, I, I just said like, you know, they're, we always see these goddesses in kind of like pre-Raphaelite light. Mm -hmm. And they always look really dusty and kind of, you know, from the romanticism painting period or whatever. And it just, it didn't feel modern. And so we, we kind of designed these like kooky, crazy looking goddesses and made a collection around them. And Matches picked it up and uh, did it in exclusive. And then we went to... London to launch it at their townhouse. And what was so great was that they, they sort of allowed me to kind of take a different tact. And this is what's cool about matches is that they're like a very modern retailer doing things in new ways. And it's not just about, let's just have a cocktail party and invite people and like buy a dress. Mm -hmm. I said like, hey, you know, why don't I invite my Qigong master from Bali and why don't we do like a week takeover in your townhouse where we can do some women's circles with um, women we know, some journalists, et cetera, kind of talk about the book. And then we can also do Qigong sessions and teach people what Qigong actually is, which is a practice that I had picked up in the last year prior to that. And so we did, and it was like an amazing new way of relating to my own company, to relating to our product, to like suddenly sitting down with women and like being human about it and being like, hey, you know what? It's not about, this is really not about looking good. <laughs> this yeah. is about feeling good and really tapping into what you need and listening to your body and your soul and your heart and the, that goddess chapter is like one of hundreds of these. There, there's lots of different kind of pools that I'm, I'm playing in. And that was the first that I sort of brought to Double J. And then lockdown, you know, sort of unexpectedly provided another resource for us. And suddenly, you know, my content team, who's great, they were like, why don't you just start talking to women? And like, and, and so I just started these videos and was really honest about what I was going through, what they might be going through. And we kind of just like, like this whole thing sort of took light and I've had great reactions. I, I, I realized like that, that's kind of my dream, you know, one day I'd really like to open up a retreat center in Italy mm. where I can host yoga retreats, meditation retreats, have my Yanni group, have my ovarian breathing girls have my energy healers and really just kind of, I don't know, that's like the future for me.
So I feel like Double J is a very important platform and gives us the visibility and gives us, it's almost like a stage in which we can do a lot of different things. And I just, my goal with the company is not, is to go beyond just selling them a dress. Yeah, it's experiential. And I think that that's really the way the industry should be going in. And and it's serious. It seems to be at least what the Gen Z's and the millennials are asking for is they don't want to just buy another dress. They want to have a whole experience where they, they go and and they do a a treatment or they go and have a, you know, a book, you know, discussion book or, or, you know, or something of that nature where it feels more like there's a whole story going on, a whole experience going on before they buy something or if they buy something that, you know, there is that connection to a brand that seems more profound and and, um, deep set. And I think that that you're really moving in the right direction that really feels organic and true to who you are as a person and and to the and to the company that you that you built from the ground up. So, you know, hats off. It's really impressive. I've always wanted to ask you this. I don't wear color. I don't wear print. I'm very minimalistic. But I wanted to ask you, because that's all you wear. You're so bright and vibrant in color. Can you just talk about any kind of key tips? And I know this is pretty generic question as well but like how to wear color and print what like are there any tips tips and tricks the tip to wearing color and print is first of all realizing that you do not need to wear it head to toe Mm, and you don't need to be mixing and matching and get yourself getting yourself confused and trying to be a maximalist on your first try Mm -hmm. so if what i was trying to find you was we we did these amazing cashmere wool scarves but that are really funny and like I have this crazy like leopard print and there's slogans on them and all this stuff so if you're wearing a sweater like you have now and you're wearing it with like black pants and you just want to jazz yourself up having this shawl scarf that is like so razzle dazzle is just like a one hit wonder that thing like travels with you it's your blanket when you're in a train when you're in a plane when you're in the automobile I mean, I'm wearing it to the park. People come up to me. They're like, what are these things that you're wearing? You know, it's just like color is such a conversation piece. It really is. And um, that's actually one thing that I noticed of uh, why a lot of women have trouble with it is that you're going to get looked at. You're going to draw draw attention. Wow. That's really sad and insightful and interesting all at the same time at that point. Exactly. And, and it's, a, it's just really something to consider. Like, how do you feel when people notice you? Back to my five questions. My first yeah. question is, what is your favorite piece of clothing that you own, your most prized possession? I think one of my most prized pieces is this vintage beaded evening coat that is from the 1960s that is in like a duchesse cream colored satin and it has crystal and pearl beading in this incredible lattice uh crisscross work where I literally feel like an empress whenever I wear it (laughs) it's like instant feel good yeah I think any piece of clothing that makes you feel like an empress has got to be your go-to piece for sure um okay the next question I have is you know we were talking about earlier not everybody has a million bucks to spend on clothing or buying new clothing every season but if there was one piece you would recommend a man or woman really invest in, what would that one investment piece be? Well, look, the easiest way, I mean, if we're talking print, um, I, I think the easiest thing for someone to, to way to get in and not spend that much money is just on a classic silk twill printed men's shirt, like men's inspired shirt, because those things go easy peasy every day of the week, evening, whatever, dress it up, dress it down. 
that's so easy. That being said, I'm kind of a dress person, to be perfectly honest. And I love wearing dresses because you don't have to think about the rest of the outfit. You know, you're good to go. You put the dress on and you're fine. Mm -hmm. So I really like those dresses that are in that mid-level where they're not super uh, casual and they're not super dressy, but you are as good on a Sunday morning as you are like just putting on some amazing earrings and lipstick and you're off to a cocktail party. So that's really what I always try to do with Double J is try create as many styles that that fit that function as possible. We have a lot of them. Yeah, very true. I mean, I have a skirt of yours that I've, I've used for uh, for every day and also for cocktail attire. So I, I, I can confirm that firsthand. Who is your favorite designer, living or dead? My favorite designer, you know, I really, she could have laughed so hard. I really like Donald Brooks. <laughs> Really? Why Donald Brooks? Yeah, because he was just an incredible colorist and had so many incredible patterns. Like when I was doing my my vintage research, almost every piece where I was like, wow, it was Donald Brooks. And I have to say, there's some others like Yves Saint Laurent and Oscar de la Renta in the 1970s. Both of them were fantastic, but I, I'm not really a huge fan of either one of them from the eighties and onward, it was really just like that specific moment of the seventies where they just nailed that bohemian romanticism where it was like sexy and fresh and colorful and feminine. Okay. All right. I'm going to have to start digging. What trend will you never follow? You know, I never really became that Celine girl of like those boxy, super minimal things, but I will say I love a a minimal piece, you know, where there it's just like a like a kind of like architectural black pant that then I wear with like my printed coat. So I'm not against minimalism. And in fact, I think it's really important to like a piece that I absolutely adore is this Max Mara camel coat from the 80s. That's a vintage piece that is like the perfect, I mean, I would wear that even over this jumpsuit. This is a, a one piece, by the way. And, um, you know, I love, I love layering on those really clean pieces with crazy printed ones. And it just like takes the whole thing down. Mm -hmm. I don't really see myself in like architectural difficult. I'm very, I'm much more feminine. I love feminine fashion. Okay. Last question. What do you love most about fashion? What I love most about fashion is the creativity and the fact that we are allowed to dream and create beauty. And I think that this is something that artists do, but they oftentimes are are trying to like prove a point in some way that sometimes like gets off just like beauty for beauty's sake. And I don't mean that to create beauty in a woman, but I just mean like, look, I don't know, the painting behind me, it's just the colors are perfect. And it, you know, this, like, it's just beauty that I am, I mean, I'm really attracted to it. It's almost like a floral bouquet. Watching flowers come up from the earth, like something growing. That's like what fashion is. We plant seeds and we watch something grow and then we put it together and we make this bouquet and we come to someone's house with it. I mean, it's like yeah. that, that sort of like cycle of creativity and creation and this constant confrontation. I mean, I, I've met so many incredible people working in this business and I'm very interested in creativity of all kinds. JJ, thank you so much. This has just been an absolute delight talking with you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jessica. I can't believe we're both from California and we both worked for Godfrey and we didn't even know it. Yeah, I know. Both, worked, both, both from California, both followed a guy to Europe 
both worked right. for, for our first job, both worked with Susie. I mean, it's crazy. Crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss. Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.